Evolutionary.org presents Evolutionary Hardcore Podcast with your co-hosts, Steve from the American Underground and Mobster from the UK Iron Den. Get ready for the most hardcore and underground info in the industry. And here we go. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6... Evolutionary.org hardcore podcast coming your way. Episode 160. We're speeding right along. Today we're doing Darum Charles, Steve Schmee here. And as always, the mobster. What's up, buddy? How you doing? Good. I I've, I I just said to Steve in the pre-show, I didn't think we was gonna have a lot on this guy, but we've got a surprising amount to talk about today. So Darum Charles, guys, IFBB pro bodybuilder from Trinidad, which is an island off the coast of South America and down in, in the Caribbean, north of South America. He's been competing since the late 80s up until 2017. He has over a dozen show-ins and has placed at Mr. Olympia nine times. So this is this guy is legit, guys. Nine-time place at Mr. Olympia. That's incredible. His peak stats, 5'9", 245, huge arms, 22-inch arms. In this article, we're going to go over his life and his successes, and we're going to talk about steroid cycle. That's in the article. And in this podcast, we're going to add an element to it. We're also going to add some more information that no one out there is talking about. So Mobster and I definitely, we've done a lot of homework on this guy. Early life on Charles, born in the summer of 69. He loved sports growing up. He got into strength training in his early teenage years. Outstanding results very early on, guys. We see this a lot with guys. As soon as they start touching the weights, they absolutely react. They got these tremendous genetics. What he did growing up, obviously, we didn't have internet. He did not have internet at the time. I didn't even have internet at the time. Mobster <laughs> definitely didn't have internet at the time. So what did you do? You had to depend on books to get you through. So that's what he did. He studied weight training. He read a lot of books. As a teenager, he won the 1986 WNBF contest. A few years later, he won the 1989 Trinidad Invitational, and then he won the World Amateur Championships in his very early 20s. He knew he had to come to America if he was to make a name for himself, and his hero was Frank Zane. So Mobster's going to get into that a little bit, but let me talk a little bit about his early success, 92 and 92. He got 12th at the Chicago Pro, going against some of the stiffest competition. It was a great experience for him because he got he went up against guys like Kevin Lebron, who we, we've done a, a podcast on previously. Early 90s, he competed at the Arnold Classic Ironman Pro in several different shows. Top showing was at the 95 Flora Pro, where he got third place. And then Mr. Olympia, before I get in, Mobster, you come in here. Mr. Olympia finishes uh, 1995, 26 years old. He got 15. 98, Mr. Olympia, he got 13. Then he would get 18th at the 01, 16th at the 02, 7th at the 03, which would be his highest Mr. O finish. And then he'd be 10th and 9th in 04, 05. And then he'd get... 14th, 12th, 
11th and 16th from 06 to 09. So very consistent, not a top five Mr. Olympia guy, but he had a couple, he had three top 10 finishes. And anytime you're even in the top, even anytime you even place at Mr. Olympia, that is an accomplishment that makes you one of the top 15, 20 bodybuilders in the world. So yeah, during the 2000s and early 2010s, he was very formidable, guys. 18 IFBB wins in total. He finished his career, which is interesting, well, and maybe Mops, you can touch on a little bit, in physique competitions. Yeah. So he kept going even into his 40s. So I thought that was interesting how he transitioned into uh, competing at physique competitions. And maybe – if that category was more uh, was around or more popular yes. back in those days, he could have cleaned house in that one all along. So, yeah. Mobster, yeah, well, what's your thoughts on this? I, I've got a bunch of thoughts. What you've just said is 100% correct. If, if the classic physique, classic class had been available for uh, Durham back in the day, he would have absolutely smashed it. In fact, as soon as it came along, he, he, he pretty much right out of the gate was killing it. And I think off the top of my head, uh, and you guys can double check this. I think the first two or three classic type physique competitions that he entered, which was towards the end of his career, he won. His his physique. I mean, I was thinking of I was thinking of negative and positives for this, Steve. Really. I was thinking, how do you approach sometimes when we're doing this podcast? I mean, the negative was quite simply that Darren was never ever going to win the, the the Open Mr. Olympia. Actually, it's just not going to happen. Equally, as a positive. All of his peers said he had some of the best presentation, the best appearance in terms of the, the tan, but specifically the posing when it came to being on stage. Uh, he won multiple posing awards, even when he was with the open class bodybuilders. But it's one of those things where you go, this guy's not enough of a monster, not enough of a freak. And yet, of course, that makes him in a, in, in a classic physique way incredibly attractive because this is a kind of physique that a lot of people say that they wouldn't aspire to. And Derham's definitely got that kind of physique. So, yeah, I mean, the other thing, there was different, different aspects for me in my mind. So, for example, Steve Smith's touched on this uh, previously in podcast and on uh, comments on the forums when he says, if you look at the West Indian, Caribbean, Trinidad, Tobago, Jamaica, etc., the whole vibe, when you're a young man, a young black Afro-Caribbean male, there are certain sports which are incredibly popular. Cricket is like El Numero Uno. And to a lesser degree, football, etc. You're also running around on the beach. You're out in the sun every day. And I think we've said in podcasts, this whole thing with the, the looking good, feeling fit, being fit, and having some sort of degree of strength is almost innate from, from childhood. So the guys are running up and down the beach on sand. They're eating fresh fruit. They're, 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 they're doing chin-ups off the trees. They're playing cricket, they're playing football, they're swimming, they're eating fresh fish, they're having coconut straight from, from the tree, and so on and so forth. And if you've got the, the genetics, which does seem to be the case, I mean, I think it's, it's both his own genetics, uh, his family genetics. He talks about uh, one reference refers to the fact that his uncle and his father both had the physiques similar to his own when he started, and his son, Renel, post post uh, Darren's actual own career has competed and, in, and indeed in the pre-show research there's a video clip certainly photographs online of 
Darren doing a posing at a competition that Ronel is competing in, and the promoters ended up getting Ronel to come on stage and do a pose to pose with his dad. So I think it was very much following his dad through the posing routine that Darren was doing. And you could see that the genetics are there again. So 100%, that's the background with the small joints, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, physically. And, and again, the nurture, this nature versus nurture thing. Some, some of us come from a, you know, was you bullied at school? Uh, was you always strong? Did you have physique from day one? What was it that got you into the sport? I can see here that Darren's going to be one of those guys. And, and Steve's already touched on this at the beginning where he says, you know, almost from the get-go, he could see that there was going to be something going on here. He could see that there was certain aspects of his physique. And as you say, the, 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 this is a guy that was, had it had the classic physique class been available to him, I think we'd be looking at a classic Mr. Olympia state. What about you? What do you think? Yeah, I think so, for sure. I think if you look at his pictures and, um, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about social media, his Instagram following, Mobster and I were kind of discussing it. He only has 30,000 followers, which is a lot. I mean, compared to the average person on Instagram, the oh, yeah. average fitness, you know, influencer wannabe, uh, some of these people, you know, they usually have a, a 500, 1,000, 1,500. So 30,000 is still a lot. But compared to someone like, you know, Arnold or The Rock, you know, it's paltry. And compared to some of the other guys we've done, who we usually have 100, 250,000, even 300, 400,000. It is like 10 times less. So it's not a lot. But if you go on his Instagram, look at those pictures, the guy is, uh, he's a freak. I mean. He would definitely have torn up. That's why with Frank, the whole Frank Zane thing, him, him liking Frank Zane's physique. I think that's, I think that's cool, you know, that, and it just shows you because Frank Zane competed back then they had an under whatever, hundred, 180, under, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Under a weight class. And then they have an overall and Frank Zane would tear it up in the underclass. And then he'd only won the Mr. Olympia once in the overall. So it's kind of the same thing, and and I think he kind of had the same situation. Some, something that you and I spoke about in the pre-show, and I think something that would apply as a, as a nice tip for the listeners here, I said that when I first started reading about training, et cetera, specifically the bodybuilding rather than the strength stuff, one of the things that came across, and I don't think it actually applies to the strength stuff as well, is picking your hero. Now, Steve says, here's, here's Darren, he's in he's in he's into Trinidad and he said right his hero is Frank Zane you go why because Frank's again another classic physique and 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 the tip goes you choose your hero in terms of bodybuilding strength training and for that matter probably other sports as well in that there's no point for example if you're a light framed small jointed classic physique bodybuilder and then choosing for example to follow the style the training the nutrition etc say a Lou Ferrigno back in the day or, 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 or you know, one of the guys that I follow on Instagram, Golem, 360-pound Russian guy. If, you're, if you've got a small phone, Frank, same type physique, there's no point following someone with a 10-inch wrist and a 60-inch chest who weighs 400 pounds. So the, the tip here is, you know, whether it's in terms of nutrition, whether it's in terms of training, whether it's in terms of set rep ranges, uh, this overall vibe, but even in terms of presentation, etc. if you become a bodybuilder, or as I say, as a strength athlete, which class to go in, or a baseball player, is don't choose someone who's an extreme opposite of who you are for advice, for information. And, and 
by all means, for inspiration, choose someone who's absolutely a monster, who's fantastic, who's got like a million home runs or whatever in baseball, this kind of stuff. That's fine. But in terms of actually choosing someone to aspire to be or to learn from, have that person's physique, in the case of the bodybuilding here, be close to yours. So, for example, Frank Zane was almost a perfect example of someone that Darren could choose to follow as a young man pre-competition because Frank Zane would have torn the classic physique class up again. We would again would have been talking about back in the day someone that would have had multiple Mr. Olympia titles in that particular classification. And again, as Steve said, someone who's under 200 pounds. Darren actually ended up being slightly heavier. The other thing which occurred to me, Steve, on changing the subject slightly, uh, he competed from 1986 to 2017, which is the last uh, time that we can find him competing. That is a period of 31 years. And off the top of my head, no major injuries, no structural issues, et cetera, et cetera. That is a hell of a long time, both from amateur through to pro status, to be competing. And something that he's into now, which I, I will assume that he works with both his clients in terms of the physique stuff, but also in terms of anti-aging. If you look at him now on his Instagram, and there's an awful lot of him choosing some crazy outfits, from my opinion, not stuff that I would wear, but that's just me. He looks young for his age. I mean, he's only five years younger than me, so that makes him 52. But he still looks like someone who's in his mid-40s. He's still got good skin. He's still carrying a bit of muscle. Some of the photographs on Instagram are a couple of years old, and he's wearing a t-shirt and his arms still look good his skin still look good he's still got good shape there's no bloated waist there's no lines on his face so his focus in terms of his training and competing etc shifted over to looking good for his age it's definitely working steve this is that maybe goes back to the whole vibe with the healthy lifestyle as man and keeping that going all the way through his career and like i said being relatively healthy all the way through his career this is a guy that had he followed perhaps the sport from a different angle with the wrong person to follow, with the uh, a different approach perhaps to uh, PEDs, anabolic steroids, etc. Try and maybe to get to 260, 270 pounds, something like this. That stress, that aspect, that much less healthy lifestyle would have probably aged him, in my opinion. The simple fact that he was able to compete for 31 years is right there. That's something very special, Steve. So let's get into his nutrition a little bit and his training. So I'm going to talk a little bit about his uh, nutrition. Um, he talks about wasting your time working out if you aren't eating well. And most of the guys that we've done have that same mentality. And, you know, it's true. And a lot of that, guys, has to do with, let's say you have a workout scheduled for 4 o'clock, okay? And then you go and you eat fast food. Then you go eat restaurant food. And then an hour later, you go do your workout. You're going to feel like crap. I mean, that food is just heavy on the body. It's full of refined oils. It's full of garbage. And it's going to go in your body, and it's just going to make you tired and sleepy. So you've got to eat a good diet, guys. And timing your meals around your workouts is so important. How many times do you walk into the locker room and bathroom and someone's thrown up everywhere or someone destroys the toilet because they eat crap and then they go to work out your body's under a lot of stress. So I talk about it all on the forum. 
and guys who listen to what I'm saying, they get it. They're like, oh shit, Steve, Steve's right. When I go into a workout and I ate a meal two hours prior, a light meal, maybe a couple eggs, maybe a little fruit, maybe some brown rice, something like that, plain. I feel so much better when I work out versus if I go eat a fucking steak or eat, go McDonald's and then go work out. So this is what he talks about a lot and it makes perfect sense. It's just going to ruin your workout if you don't eat good. I've got one very quick thought here, Steve, and I'm, I'm sure we've seen examples of this when we're talking about this. And that is that some guys only have the post-workout meal as the healthy meal of the day. And you and I have talked about this before. And again, we, we can, there are a million videos people we can follow on YouTube and Instagram where we see this. Guys, these people are having from the first meal to the last meal, clean, tidy, healthy. If your post-workout meal is chicken and rice, and you imagine yourself somehow some sort of bodybuilder or whatever else, that's fine. But if you're having some sugar-laden, chocolate-laden cereal for breakfast, some crappy protein bar type thing for, for a mid-morning snack, some burger thing at lunchtime, and the only time that you're eating healthy is maybe before and after your workout, that's not the right approach. So from, and again, it sounds incredibly boring, but there are a million ways, again, that you can spice things up. And we talked about this before. You look at these guys, you look at why they're successful. And genetics, yes. And drugs, yes. But the food, none of these guys are eating crap and using steroids. None of these guys have got crap genetics and using steroids and looking amazing. They're doing all of the aspects properly. And it, it's going to be boring, maybe, less junk field. Definitely healthy. Yes, 100% healthy. So eggs, vegetables. There's one guy, we see you guys doing this all the time. I don't like my vegetables. I don't care what you like. Eat it. Eat fresh vegetables. Eat organic eggs. Eat chicken with the skin peeled off. Eat brown rice. Eat fish. Eat West Indian food. I've had West Indian food. If it's not too heavy on a spice, it's absolutely amazing. They waste nothing. It's cooked for hours. It's cooked at a low temperature. The stuff that I've eaten was spectacular. It's completely different from what I was used to. Unbelievably healthy. And again, anti-aging. In the two or three examples of times when I've sat down with people of a certain age, as an older than me, 10, 15, 20 years older than me, the skin was amazing. And this is coming from an eating healthy from day one, from child to old man. I'm, I'm talking about 16, 70 year old a British Jamaican, and eating healthy the whole time. This is not, Mama and, 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 and Nan are not walking down to McDonald's. They're not eating junk food. They're not eating chocolate and sugar-laden cereals. They're having healthy from day one thing. Right, I want to get into the training. So sometimes, and we've talked about this in the podcast before, you're not looking at anything too spectacular and Darren is no surprises. There's no huge shock. He's not training differently. He's not come up with a newfangled way of working his legs on the leg press or a different way of squatting or whatever else. What he did do, and again, this is actually kind of useful in terms of less likely to injure himself, more likely to get something out of his training, more likely to keep him going for that 30 plus years that he was competing and having no injuries to do that. He would rotate his exercise. And he specifically, on one of the videos that I watched, said that he doesn't do the same chest workout or the same arm workout or whatever two times on the trot. There's, there's, you're not doing 
incline bench week one, incline bench week two, incline bench week three. What he was doing, and it's a little bit like dog crap trading, is we're rotating a series of workouts. This could be six workouts for chess, for example. And each work, each week for six weeks, he's doing one of the six. That way he gets more out of each of the ex, each of the set routines that he's doing. He's not doing the same routine back, back, back to back. So he says fresh, he's getting that stimulus that a lot of people like. You don't have to have, for example, I, I'm a great one for doing 20, 30 weeks of a routine. That works for me. But equally, you set yourself up sometimes for injury and strains and wear and tear when you're doing that stuff. And as a professional bodybuilder, the last thing you want to do, especially if you're guest posing, you're on stage, you need to look and be a certain particular way, you're making money from your body, is you don't want injuries. You don't want to be tired. You don't want to be stressing when you go to the gym. You want to be stimulated. So he was doing a particular workout that I saw. So you guys can check the, some of his training videos and you see him doing hammer strength incline, for example, and getting a hell of a pump. Off comes the top, uh, comes a chest and away he's flexing. But he won't do that workout the next time he trains chest. It'll be one of the six, one of the eight, whatever the number is given to himself. And it's a great way for keeping, as I say, stimulated. It stops you being bored. It's much better way, safer way in terms of injury. Um, you don't have to do crazy weights. Darren doesn't do any heavy weights in the workouts that I saw. But like a lot of professional bodybuilders, there's almost an element with some of the guys, especially some of the smaller frame guys. And I think Darren's going to have that kind of frame that is, 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 is small to medium, where they do seem to get more out of an exercise. It's innate in them for to have their feet in the right position on leg extensions, to contract the muscle at the point of traction. And, and flexed a little bit and so on and so forth. Lots of people never learn that. Other people have to be taught that. And for some guys, I think Darren is one of those guys, it's kind of innate. They kind of almost learn for themselves very, very quickly how to get the most out of an exercise while they're doing it. It's hard to do. It is hard to do. But as I said, I think the key, key takeaway for me watching him train was him not doing the same workout back to back. Not, not, he wouldn't train chest the same way two, three weeks, four weeks, five weeks on the trot. No. And, and as I said, it's a great way for keeping you healthy. Steve and I have both had tweaks and injuries and nagging pains and whatever else. And I'm sure that's come sometimes from pushing too hard continuously on an exercise when we should have changed it to something else. What do you think, Steve? Yeah, at the end of the day, you have to stress the muscle. You have to train the muscle. It's about getting stronger. You can't just sit on the couch and takes a bunch of steroids, even if you have great genetics, and build muscle. That only, see, the studies that you see out there that show that, those are with people who have muscle-wasting diseases. If you have a muscle-wasting disease and you take steroids, it will hold your muscle. So <clears throat> you see people sometimes on social media quote those studies, but they don't explain what the study shows, and they're actually going against what they're trying to say, but they're not smart enough to understand that. So when you are trying to get to his level, you've got to put in good, consistent training and train that muscle. It's just like if you want to become a great marathon runner, you have to go run. You have to put in the hours running. So it's the same thing with training. So at the end of the day, guys, um, one more thing I want to throw in and then we'll add some opinions is his mother passing away. So I kind of came across this. I wasn't sure if it was true or not, but um, I read it on several places. And from what I came up with in 2002, 
his manager, who at the time was Dan Solomon, confirmed that Charles' mother was shot in New York. And I originally thought he had skipped the Mr. Olympia that year, but then I went back and I took a look at it. And I confirmed this, that he did actually, in fact, compete at Mr. Olympia in 2002. And um, he did it, you know, in support of his mother and in her memory. And he finished in 16th place. So that's something that I know Arnold used to talk about that. Because I, I know there was a time when Arnold's dad passed away and he was competing and he you know, he basically said straight up, I'm not sure he really liked his dad. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think so maybe yeah, that's a bad Arnold, example, but I think it's one Arnold, of those Arnold, Arnold lied. There's, there is some truth, but he lied at the same time. So his mama definitely passed away, but for, for the Pumping Iron movie, he said something like, to give the impression of how hardcore and into training he was, he said, I, you know, I carried on training because there was a competition coming up. So there's a, Arnold's a little bit naughty in terms of uh, the complete truth in terms of that stuff. You just reminded me, though, Steve, two things, uh, one specifically on this subject and one on something else. So just this week, in fact, Arnold Schwarzenegger awarded a Lifetime Achievement Award to Ronnie Coleman. And Ronnie got incredibly emotional at the end of his speech when he talked about his mum his mum came to mind. And you might recall that his mum was on stage with him at one Olympia. I think that was probably the first time he won after he collapsed. And then he stood up and his mum then she flexes her biceps to the genetics with her 100%. One of the things he later did with his money, his winnings, is he bought his mum a house. When he got the Lifetime Achievement Award, he actually started crying and he broke down. And he, he said, I can't get the words out. He was choking those. He literally choked out, I can't get the words out. And Arnold had him on the back, gave him a minute. And he essentially said, look, Mama, I got a Lifetime Achievement Award. So it's interesting for me and for some of you guys, what motivates you, what gets you going and what drives you? Sometimes will be parental approval. It's also sometimes these are the people that support you and allow you to be able to go to the train, whether they're supporting you with going to college or university, whether they're getting you, you know, helping you get a good job, et cetera, et cetera. And sometimes to get to the top of your sport, whether, it, whether it's baseball, basketball, pro football, soccer, or bodybuilding, you need the support of people around you. And having someone who's helped with your upbringing and put food on the table and then continue to do that when you've chosen perhaps a less than obvious route vis-a-vis -vis bodybuilding to aspire to becoming a professional when perhaps your mum would have loved you to have been a doctor or a lawyer or solicitor or something like that. So there's a, a great thing here where this person has carried on supporting you and driving you and pushing you and putting bread on the table, and putting money in your pocket before you started making a living, before you started winning prizes and getting sponsorship. There's a great thing there sometimes. And in this case, I believe this is probably going to be the situation here where that person, his mum, has, has helped make it and turn him into the person that he became as an adult, as a professional bodybuilder, et cetera changing something slightly and something that occurred to me in the pre-show research Darren talks about something which I kind of liked and we're just about to get into the PEDs Darren said something specifically to do with the approach to competition and Steve me and I've seen this again on the forums where sometimes people are asking questions about PEDs or training and they're literally in a competition cycle we've actually seen extreme examples 
when they're only two to four weeks away from a competition and they're asking if they could they should introduce this. And sometimes the worst example is where they don't even know what the hell they're talking about with regards to a drug which they're just about to put into the body and they're four weeks away from competition. Now, Darren, Darren kind of touched on this in terms of a tip where he said he knows exactly where he's going to be in his training cycle. He knows exactly where he's going to be in terms of his competition prep. He knows where he's going to be eight weeks out. He knows where his physique is going to be, excuse me, four weeks out. He knows what he's going to look like two weeks out. He's not screwing around. And we've seen professionals do this by adding diuretics at the last minute. He's not screwing around and, and realizing I should have done more cardio. He knows his body well enough. And guys, if the modern thing is to work with coaches, of course, and have that coach learn your body too. But I don't want to be learning about my physique two weeks away from a competition if I was a bodybuilder. I don't want to be suddenly realizing I should have trained harder as a strength athlete and suddenly realize I've only got two weeks to get stronger. I, should, I need to be kind of ready. So Darren specifically touching upon this point and saying he plans for where he's going to be 16, 12, 10, 8, 4, 6 weeks, whatever, out from a competition. And he pretty much knows what's going to happen. I mean, short of falling over and breaking his rigging neck or there suddenly being a run on chicken breast, there should be no reason for him to screw up before a competition because he plans where he's going to be. So there's your last tip in terms of stuff that you should be doing and routes to success and at least bring in your best package because you can't do anything about the competitions, but bring in your best package by not screwing up, by not having unplanned stuff get in the way, by knowing where you're gonna be, where your physique should be this time, this time and this time before a competition. Let's get into the PED, Steve, I'll let you start. So listen, it's no secret. You want to get to Mr. Olympia. You want to place in Mr. Olympia. You want to, you want to get top 10 in Mr. Olympia. Obviously, you have to use steroids. Is there any, any person at Mr. Olympia who doesn't use steroids? I mean, if they did, they would be free. Now, no chance. <laughs> even back in the day when Olympia started, I think Larry even talks about use of steroids. I think it was the third year. He'd done those first two wins, and then he was doing a guest posing, and he said, Taking about talking about taking steroids. So no, I don't even know day one of Mr. Olympia. No. Well, according to Charles, he started his career naturally when he was a yeah. teenager and he did well at natural competitions. Now, was he, you know, screwing with the truth a little bit? I'm not really sure. Because in those times, too, you could just I know in the United States, you could buy a pro hormone from a nutrition oh, store, yeah. Yeah. like Andro and stuff like that. So I mean, is that natural? Is taking Andro natural? So sorry, no, but obviously as time went on, as he got into his twenties, obviously he started taking them. So during the two thousands, you know, we kind of go over some of the main steroids that guys in that era were messing around with. And we know this because a lot of them have come forward since and haven't talked about steroid use and they've been open about it in interviews and stuff. So, you know, right off the bat, testosterone, uh, 600 milligrams a week, that's not a high dose. Guys today probably use a lot more and then they'll still cut it off once they get close to competition because you're able to use estrogen blockers in the 2000s. Those were around and he probably would use stuff like Letro 
Novadex. Those were the two main estrogen blockers at that time. Obviously, we didn't have um, Arimidex wasn't really known about. And then Aromacin, I don't even think was out, was, uh, was invented yet. So in those times, you know, that's how they can kind of control their estrogen during cycle. They didn't really care how the Letro and the Novadex made them feel. They just took it because that's what that's, you know, it did the job. Now, another steroid that was big in the 2000s off the 90s, it started getting popular in the 90s and then blew up in the 2000s, which is why you saw an evolution in the physique monster from the 90s to the 2000s, you saw guys getting bigger. What is going on here? What is a secret weapon that they were, you know, jacking up was Trembolone. And I think in the 90s, they were using a much smaller dosage. And then by the 2000s, and then today, obviously, they're using much mega dosage of Trembolone. They're making Trem- it. Yep. They're it's making it from the cow pellets. Absolutely. A lot of guys started to use it. And then it's only later on that we was able to source it the way we can now. So yeah, yep. 90 to 2000 from Phenoplex. But later That's, on. Yeah. Yeah. So they're all over it. Um, in 800 milligrams a week, look, if you wanted to keep up with the guy you're chasing, let's say you got 10th place. And then the next year he's like, man, I want to, I want to get ahead. That guy who was ninth and eighth and seventh and sixth place. I want to jump over them. I want to get fifth place. And they're running more trend than me. I gotta, I gotta run more trend to the point where it makes me ill. It makes me sick. You know, mm. it makes me, it makes it makes me have a hard time sleeping. But they had to do what they had to do. So 800 milligrams a week, trembolone, and and that's that's what you gotta do. I mean, it hurts. It sucks. Hundred thousand milligrams of Masteron. It's it's a hardener. Why would they use it? Oh my God, Masteron doesn't do anything by itself. No, it doesn't, but it's a hardener. So it, it, it's a complement to these other steroids. So a gram a week of Masteron, no problem. It's not bad, that bad with side effects. You can add a lot. Another one that's not bad with side effects, Primabolin. This is kind of one of those steroids. It was big in the 70s. It was big, especially in the early 80s. Guys were still messing around with it into the 90s. 2000s, they've kind of gotten away with it. I mean, today, I'm not even sure if they even use Primabolin anymore. At these mm. these guys who are competing, they may not even use it. They may be like, "Yeah, it's pointless. It's too expensive. It's pointless to even add it to my cycle." But look, I think in the two thousands, they would have still had over a gram of it. Doesn't have much side effects. You can use a lot of it. So two hundred milligrams a day would be something they would use. I mean, Arnold in the seventies was make, using one hundred milligrams a day. So I don't see why in the two thousands they wouldn't be using two hundred milligrams a day. Winstrol, and then I'll bring in Mobster, 100 milligrams a day Winstrol. Why? Why would they use Winstrol? It's a dryer. It's going to dry you out. So mishmashing these steroids in there, you drop the testosterone, and you hit that Winstrol over 100 milligrams a day. He may have even went to 150 milligrams a day of the, of the Winstrol. So Mobster, what else do you think he used? I've just spotted a mistake. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The original article before edited was a thousand milligrams of anabar. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, I'm, I'm just I'm laughing, Steve. We all make this do this all the time, especially. Right. So 100 milligrams a day of anabar. I mean, this we're talking about a competition cycle here, people, as per usual. Right. And in fact, one of the comments I made in my show notes was that one year 1995 he competed nine shows 
So here's a year, perhaps, and we've addressed this in podcasts before, where when we talk about competition cycles, we're really only talking about 16 weeks. And more than that, we're talking about the last eight, nine weeks of a competition when they're using the most amount of gear they're using is, Steve said, the Primo, the, the Mastron, et cetera, to harden up, to stay in shape, et cetera, for competition. That 1995 is potentially, maybe for Darren, the one year that he was on something of a level close to a competition cycle all year round with the natural physique and the genetics that he had. It's arguable with regards to the dosages here somewhere. When we're talking about uh, the cycle, we're talking about someone like Darren around the 2000. So we could argue about the amount, Steve, I'm sure. Primo, for example, I wonder sometimes with Primo if the issue is that a lot of the Primo back in the day was legit from a pharmacist from a chemist, et cetera, whereas a lot of Primo now, of course, come from an underground lab. And it, it occurs to me, not that I know the answer to the question, that maybe it's just an expensive job to manufacture. And this is why A, costs more, and B, of course, it's fakes so much. But back in 2000, especially as Steve says, 70s, 80s, these guys were getting it from literally from doctors. Uh, Gold's Gym had their own sort of kind of go-to guy. And, you know, you were buying this stuff on script. It wasn't out of the trunk. That was around the 90s, 2000. It was then it started to be faked, etc. So, yeah, 100 milligrams a day of Anivar. That's pretty much twice what m most Joes would use. But we're talking about maintaining your strength here, keeping your strength in the gym, et cetera, et cetera. And, of course, in combination with the other drugs producing a, a decent result. Now, the 15 I use a day, which is what we're suggesting guys were using back then and someone like Darren might have used, is almost laughable now to a top professional bodybuilder. And in fact, you go on certain kinds of forums uh, or, or Facebook where some of these PD discussions take place and they can't get their heads around the fact that someone might have been taking this, this small an amount. And 30 I use a day is considered kind of like the go-to kind of starting point for uh, uh, people that are considering to compete. And I'm talking about amateur bodybuilders, never mind professional bodybuilders. But of the time, 2000s, this was common. And again, as per usual, and I think Darren would have enjoyed, uh, had he used this amount, great repair for the skin, which goes with the anti-ager stuff that we touched on earlier on, great uh, repair to any tweaks, aches and pains. And again, his style of training would have been useful and beneficial in that particular way. And then obviously a conditioner in terms of diet, the training and the other drugs keep the helping with the decrease in body fat. It's not something you can just take when you'll suddenly get lean. It has to be done in combination with everything else. But again, 15 IUs a day. It's probably pushing in terms of year-round use with potential for issues like carpal tunnel, et cetera, which we talked about, and some water retention. So then you would end up with, which we're getting to the last drug on that a bit in the middle, 10 IUs a day of insulin. Again, kind of almost moderate compared to what people discuss now. And I think Steve's touched on this in previous podcasts, but he's got guys taking two, three, sometimes more IUs uh, with every meal. So if you're taking six, seven meals a day, you're straight in the, then you're in the 20 and 30 IUs of insulin a day. But again, that goes back to the junk food reference that we made earlier on. There's, you need to be eating right to get the benefit from this. You need to be timing it right to get the benefit from this. Just sticking this stuff in and hoping for the best. It's just you're not going to produce that physique that you think is going to happen because you're taking a certain particular drug. And insulin is exactly like that. 
I know too many, and Steve me and I have discussed this before, too many people who take both HGH and insulin and end up looking just as bad, if not worse than before, because their diets are so poor, because their training is so bad, and they're convinced this is a wonder drug. And as good as these drugs are, do it with the right training, with the right timing, and eat properly, and you will see results, but you need to be on point. And so many people are not on point. Going back to what I said about the re water retention, Steve Smee and I have touched on this before when we're talking about bodybuilders of this time period, and that is diuretics and specifically Lasix in this particular example. And I can think of a couple of, I'd have to think of the names, but I can think of a couple of bodybuilders from back in the day where this is something that guys screwed up on screwing up on diuretics. And again, I touched on this earlier on, Steve. If you are, if you are, if you are, and I use the old inverted, inverted fingers, the rabbit ears here, the, I'm holding water when in reality you're fat and you're fatter than you should be and it's three days to the competition. So you suddenly shove in the diuretics and go cardio crazy and try not to lose any muscle and then fuck up on your diuretics that's why you were producing, and we saw this on stage with Paul Gillette, et cetera, people cramping up, uh, sipping next to no water at all, or having no water, screwing around. You need to be with, especially with diuretics, using the least amount possible to produce the best results by being in shape. And Darren is a fantastic example of someone, and I'm taking this just from the people around him. He's fellow competitors saying he was a great one for presentation, great for condition, great at posing, who had this stuff on point. So if he was using it, he was using exactly how it should be used and exactly the right amounts to produce exactly the result, right results. Not, as I said earlier on, going to be someone who suddenly looks like a Mr. Olympia covered in veins or whatever else, but someone who's in shape on stage on the day that he needs to be and not fucking up. I don't think we can find examples of Darren cramping up on stage, Darren coming on stage looking watery, looking out of shape, looking out of condition, his presence, his tan shit, his glazes shit, his haircuts all over the place. No, all of those things are on point. And re remember what I said earlier on about planning. This is not someone who's panicking a week before a competition. And not, and not only that, Steve, this is, again, for the 2000s, how many coaches are we talking about? How many people had coaches? I'm thinking, babes, of a couple of coaches that were well-known, working with people like Jay Cutler and Ronnie Coleman. Darren doesn't strike me as someone that was working with a, a coach or a guru. He had a manager, as you mentioned earlier on, Dan Solomon, but I don't think he had a coach or a guru. So here's someone, people, and again, this is something you should, you need to know yourself when it comes to response to drugs, you need to know your stuff in terms of your condition. You need to be ready, as Dorian used to say, five or six days away from the competition. Don't be someone that's panicking and shoving in, overdoing the diuretics or going crazy, doing, and again, something that's not mentioned on the list here, Steve, but it was around about that kind of time when it started to come in. In fact, two drugs, one would be Nubane and DNP. Uh, and again, these to me, some people were using to, to make up for being out of shape, to make up for a poor diet, for make up not being planned ahead of time to be in shape a few days before the competition so that when they're on stage, when the time matters, they are on point. And Darren, regardless of his ability to win in Mr. Lippi, was on point. When you've got Sean Ray, who was never a great one for giving away uh, kudos, 
before he retired, afterwards, a bit more familiar, but before he would not tell you that you look good. And he was one of those people that said, Darren was great with presentation, great with posing. So yeah, this is the guy that had his shit together. His cycle would not have been crazy. It wouldn't have been as extreme as now, and it didn't need to be. And he was so he knew his physique well enough that you weren't talking about an unplanned, panic-stricken approach to getting stage ready that we sometimes see with these extreme examples of diuretics and DMP and Nubane and everything else, and and doing crazy amounts of clean roll and all this kind of stuff to get into shape. Darren strikes me as not being one of those kind of people because of everything we've mentioned already. So this is why he was ended up presenting what would have been an absolutely amazing classic physique type package on stage. And of course, as and when those competitions come out, he went out and proved that. I think pretty much the first decent free classic physique competitions or class competitions with those classes in, he went out and showed his people exactly that by winning the first three that he competed in, Steve. So this is a guy that probably knew his physique, wasn't making these kind of mistakes, and had his stuff together. As I said, the only year I can think, doing, I've done four competitions in a year, Steve, I don't know about you, and the idea of doing nine, no, not a chance, but there's a guy that has to be in shape year round. He's not getting out of shape at any point during that year. And that's the only year that I can say perhaps he was on a high level of PEDs all year. What do you think? I think you bring up a good point. His transition from being a heavyweight bodybuilder to a physique competitor as he got older, I think he got sick of watching all these guys do chemical warfare on their bodies. He got sick of having to do it himself. So he wanted to do it more healthy and do something where he wasn't having to bulk up to 250, 260 pounds just to stay up with his competition. So I think that's part of the reason he did it as well. I think he took his health much more seriously and he didn't want to destroy his health. He didn't want to shorten his life. So I think that, that, that played a big, big part in it as well. He, so, he, looked, yeah. he looks great now. As I said, the photographs on Instagram that he presents uh, is, is, is that uh, a longevity thing? He's going to events. And a couple of the photographs is T-shirt. Now, as I said, he is 55 years of age, 54 years of age, something like 53, 54. He's five years yet something, so 52. And he's presenting a, a physique a couple of years ago, so in his 50s, looking like most of us would love to look. So he's gone maybe, so I'm not going to be on stage. I'm still going to look good. I'm still going to look like I'm 200 plus. I'm still going to have those round muscle bellies. My skin still looks good. We don't hear of Darren having health issues. We don't hear of Darren ever doing crazy stuff. And I said, you've got your peers. That's the people around you. Guys, that's the, 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 the other people that are beating you in competition saying what a great physique and how you presented it, etc. And again, like I said, the reference to the planning and not making mistakes, the rotating exercises, all of those things suggest to me there is a guy that's thinking ahead. He doesn't come across that way. He doesn't shout and holler. He's not telling you his great secret when he talks about training or whatever else. And he's kind of, kind of very chilled out, even when he's talking to the camera on the videos that I watched. You know, nowadays, if with social media, we'd be out there saying, oh, you know, I know the secret, come to me. He's not doing any of those things. He's completely relaxed, just kind of cool, getting his shit together, being organized, not going crazy, not having to make silly things, and looking damn good in his 50s. For a guy that competed for 30-something years, 
still looks pretty good, even with the clothes on in the more recent photographs that he's got. So I think, if, guys, if you're an older athlete, hit him up. Hit us up, but hit him up because he's a guy who's gone on his Instagram who's almost certainly going to be really, really good working with people perhaps in their 40s and having you continue to be a great athlete when you've only got so another couple of years is going to be 60 years of age, Steve. And I suspect there's going to be one of those guys that's going to look great in his 60s, great when he's 65, great when he's 70. It's going to take a long time for this guy to get old. It really is. And I bet he's carrying some muscle even then. I bet he's still got a V taper and a six pack when he's in his late 60s. And it, as I said, we we doing the, the pre-show research, my thought was, was kind of middle of the pack. What are we going to say about this guy? What what what's he going to have to offer? in terms of our doing this hardcore podcast. And I ended up surprising myself by having quite a bit of information on him. And in fact, maybe it's because I'm older too, you end up saying, hang on, this guy's got his shit together now. He's had his shit together from pretty much day one. And look how look how organised he is and look how planned he is and look how he didn't go for an extreme approach. As Steve said, he never tried to get the 260, 270 pounds. So he ends up being someone who's actually kind of inspirational, looking good, and he's 50 something years of age, 52, 53 years of age still. That's pretty, that's up what the hell. That's, that's, you know, it's something just for the, for the smaller, medium weight guys out there, the guys with a classic physique, Darren's got something to, to show you guys. You can definitely learn from him and hopefully learn from us talking about it on the podcast. That is it. That sums it up, guys. Darren, Charles, check them out, guys, on Instagram, check them out on social media, and check them out in the articles that we come out with on the podcast. So, Mobster, you want to preview the next guy we're doing and take us into the disclaimer? So the next guy is a very interesting gentleman and a proof, especially as part of the podcast, positive that you don't need fancy gym equipment to get into good shape. So I'm not going to say much more than that. So look forward to that one in number 161. Uh, the disclaimer is always, people, Please note, we are not doctors and the opinions are ours and ours alone. It is our view and based on our experience and views on the topic, which comes from many, many years. A podcast of informational purposes and entertainment only. The freedom of speech and the third amendment applies. <laughs>